Good morning and welcome. <clears throat> I'm the late Scott Warner. Sorry for being late this morning. I, there was a, must have been something traffic, or it must have been an accident on the drive because it's never taken me this long to get here. And uh, I'm president of the Culinary Historians of Chicago. We're going to take you on a sneak preview of Cuba's culinary scene today, something that not too many people know about yet, crossing into Cuba. I heard our speakers talk about their adventure at Read It Neat Bookstore in Chicago a couple of months ago, and I immediately invited them to speak before our group. Uh, the two are friends, Dan Goldberg and Andrea Kuhn. Andrea, how do you pronounce your Kuhn? Okay. Kuhn, Andrea Kuhn, and they fell in love with Cuba at first sight on their visit three years ago. They decided to write a cookbook to celebrate the spirit of the country and visited Cuba three times during their journey to document a place they have grown to love so much. Their, their book, that's a beautiful book, um, is um, it, it's Cuba Recipes and Stories from the Cuban Kitchen. It details their, their adventures, the food they ate, and the recipes they were inspired to create back home. You're going to talk about the, the way it's illustrated and everything. Great. And uh, Dan is an award-winning commercial photographer specializing in food photography. So you can imagine what the photos are like in this book. He's, um, his work has been recognized by the London International Advertising Awards, and he's been listed as Archive's Best 200 Advertising Photographers. When not taking photographs, you can find him seeking out the best food and drink in town, fly fishing, fly fishing traveling the world with his wife Casey and daughter Dylan, and uh, Dan lives in Oak Park, and Andrea is a prop stylist and art director. Her work has appeared in national magazines and ad campaigns, as well as numerous cookbooks. When not on set, you can find Andrea going through flea markets near and far, looking for the perfect prop, or enjoying a good cup of coffee and hanging at the dog park with her doodle, Finley. And Andrea lives in Chicago. And well, that being said, let's, let's go to Cuba now. Okay. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, we're first going to start and tell you a little bit about how the book was, was created. Um, the first time I went to Cuba, I went for a photo workshop, and it was all sold out. So the next week, Dan went to Cuba, and we both loved it so much that we wanted to do a personal project about, we thought about the Paladars in Cuba, but then we realized they were more touristy than we thought, so we needed another angle, so we decided to go into people's kitchens in Cuba and shoot our recipes there. We have um, original Cuban recipes from grandma, a grandma in Cuba, and then we brought some back since they don't have all of our spices and stuff and tried to make it a little more Americanized, and so there's some traditional Cuban recipes in here and also ones we created. Yeah, so like Andrea said, um, the, the paladars were something we were really interested in going into and, and possibly doing a book on, and after you know spending time there, I was uh, traveling with the Cuban guide and kind of realizing that like 
you know, these expensive dinners are not the way that Cubans eat. And uh, he took us to some of his friends' homes and um, grandparents' homes, and they started sharing recipes and food with us and, and showing us the way the Cuban people ate and made us realize that that's really what this is about, is their heritage, their tradition, their culture. And um, photographing that and um, gathering stories from them and recipes, and then after five years, we have been working on this book and finally got it published uh, last year. Here's one of my favorite pictures that, that Andrea shot here. Um, this is at a market in Havana that we love to go to. And uh, year after year, we saw the same people. So I'll let Andrea talk a little bit about this picture. This is my favorite picture and ladies. So the first time I ever went to Cuba, I took this picture. Seems to get a lot of laughs. And um, the next year I went back and they remembered me and hugged me and I took another picture of them. And then the third year we went back, I was so excited to see my ladies and the whole huge place was boarded up because um, the Chinese had bought it to, we don't know what it's gonna be now, but it was our favorite place to go and it just shows how Cuba's changing so much. This was like a huge market with fresh vegetables live chickens, anything you could imagine, a flower market. It was four square blocks, and now it doesn't exist anymore, but hopefully something better will come along. This was in another market, a, a smaller market, um, and that's kind of the first thing we do when we, get, when we get to Cuba, or really when we travel anywhere, is go to the market and see what the food is like, what the people are like, what the locals are eating, and uh, some people are great with letting you take their picture and other people kind of cover up their face and won't allow you to shoot their photos. So this guy, of course, was selling some food and had no problems with me uh, taking his picture and kind of one of my favorite uh, pictures that I've taken in Cuba and one that I really kind of represents the, the people and, and um, the market. And you always, we always saw amazing, um, unexpected things happening at the market. And Andrea would say, hey, come over here, look at this, take this picture, oh, look at this. And uh, the, the big market she talked about was, was just a fantastic place that we love to go to. Um, and it was really a shame that, it, that it's not there anymore. But it also shows you that, you know, when traveling, especially in Cuba, when you see a photograph, you have to take it because if you come back two minutes later or two days later or two years later, it's, it's not there anymore. So um, this guy was quite a character and, and a fun photograph. This is one of the pictures at that market where the cigar guy was. And they're very resourceful there. One of the times I'm like, Dan, you have to see this. There were two guys on a bicycle with some old suitcases, and when they opened them up, there was, the meat was in there. <laughs> we never got sick, though, in Cuba. <laughs> That's amazing. Another favorite market shot here. Um, we, we always tended to find some funny, kind of unexpected uh, photos of people and great food, and we would gather lots of food and come back and, and cook it and bring ingredients home. and. Uh, talk to people about the food that they ate and really kind of get into the heart and soul um, of the food and the spices and the, the produce that they had there.
Yeah, some some of the markets can not be so attractive, but also um, this book is is different than a lot of cookbooks because it's really about the real food and the real people and real stories. And some of that may be grotesque to some people, but we found a lot of beauty in it, um, and also found, you know, uh, it's true to their culture and and something we saw in a lot of markets. Um, there was one point where I was photographing some some guys who were kind of tossing goat heads into a wheelbarrow, and of course I know that they didn't they didn't love me taking the picture, so of course they they tossed a little extra towards me, so I ended up covered in some nasty goat blood and <laughs> but uh that's all part of being there and trying to trying to get the right shot and um kind of immersing yourself in it. This is one of my pictures. I thought it was funny how it mimics Castro's looking the same way as the woman. This is also at my favorite market. She was not a fan of picture taking, but I liked the picture. That's why, to me, when I first went to Cuba, I loved like people might think it looks decrepit and old, but I loved all the patina. I have hundreds of pictures of patinaed walls and stuff because that, to me, it is beautiful. This was a, a family invited us into their home uh, where we spent pretty much the, a good portion of the day cooking with them and eating with them. Um, I say a family, I think it was multiple families and, and grandparents and aunts and uncles and, and neighbors and they all lived under one roof, and um, this is all natural light. They had a really beautiful skylight that kind of funneled through the middle of this kind of a apartment building and then funneled into each each room, and it was just really beautiful. And um, we cooked with them all day. I, uh, I, I shot photos of this young boy here who, in, turn, in return, shot some pictures of me. I showed him how to use my camera, and the two of us were just having a great time taking pictures. and eating with them and this is this is maybe the only time that I actually got sick when I was there they they offered some rum at the end of the day and it wasn't the cleanest looking glass and Andrea was smart enough to say no I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna drink any of that and it, it was some kind of homemade rum that one of the uh, his older brothers had made and uh, I went for it anyway and didn't feel so great the next day but uh, and just uh as I was talking about the patinaed wall, as a prop stylist, I couldn't, I'd have to pay hundreds of dollars to find that kind of wall somewhere. There's the boy playing the harmonica. He also did a mean Michael Jackson imitation. He was a character. And here they are eating dinner. This place was a apartment building, but it had no formal doors and stuff. So they lived on in the back of one story of the apartment and then up front there was a mother and her child lived and the the father here made sure that uh his entire family ate before he sat down and ate anything and we didn't really ask why but i think he just wanted to make sure the entire family um had enough to eat before he was going to eat anything himself these were two chefs I was photographing uh, on my first trip when we were um, going into the Paladars and, and uh, I saw this pink sofa and thought, 
we got to go out and take a picture of you guys out here. Um, it was just kind of too perfect with the green and the pink and the colors. And um, Andrea and I went back to this restaurant three or four different times. And every time we got went back, it was a different place. The same, same owner, same place, but it was drastically changed. Um, pink sofa was gone. There was artwork hanging up. I think there was a pizza parlor in the front of it the next time we came. Appaladar is a, uh, a restaurant run in um, the, somebody's home. So it was against the law to uh, be an entrepreneur or have your own business. And the Cuban people made about $20 a month uh, from the government. But in order to try and make some extra money, they would have a restaurant or try a little side business. Um, it, was, it was against the law up until I think about five years ago, they started to make it maybe within the past five to 10 years, they made it more legal. And so people started to have these paladars started popping up uh, more frequently. And um, otherwise, everything is run by the government, owned by the government. So we always tried to find uh, the paladars where we could go and have local cuisine from the local people and pay the local people instead of giving all of our money to the government. And for this restaurant, it was in an empty office building and the restaurant was on the roof deck and as Dan said the next time we went this was gone there was art on the walls and in the f lobby there was a pizza restaurant then the third time we went we knew things were changing in Cuba because then on the table they had salt and pepper shakers from Costco so some <laughs> We, a lot of the people, our guides and friends that we met there would always ask us to bring things back for them, whether it was, you know, um, some shakers for their bar or um, ingredients that we had here. Um, so I, we're, we're not sure if the Costco salt and pepper came from somebody bringing that down or, or, or how they got that in. But um, it, we saw more and more signs of uh, Cuba changing and evolving and... Um, the first time we went, Andrea and I saw this woman on the street that would kind of pose for a photograph. I think she had a cigar in her mouth and she would uh, let people take her picture. Next time we went, we saw her there again, kind of a touristy thing. And then the third time we went, she had a selfie stick and was taking a selfie of herself. And we thought, oh my God, people didn't even have cell phones the last time we were here. So we knew that it was, it was growing and changing and, um, you know, when after school we'd see the kids waiting in line, you'd see a line full of girls waiting to talk on a payphone. Uh, and at first it was like, what are they doing talking on a payphone? Well, I guess they're all talking to their boyfriends after school on the payphone and just something that we ha haven't had to do. Um, and it seemed really kind of uh, out of place, uh, but that's, that's changing each time we've, we've gone back. This was uh, in one of the Paladars. Actually, was this a Pal La Guardia? Yeah. yeah. One of the most famous Paladars. Um, and this was a room right next to that restaurant. And they had all the napkins hanging and linens hanging from, from the restaurant. And uh, this little girl happened to be kind of scooting around and uh, the beautiful light coming in through the window. And it, really a beautiful, a beautiful building. Yeah, all these pictures so far are from Havana. This is a picture I took, one of my favorites. It was actually the last picture I took on my first trip. I just love it. I don't know why. <laughs>
Andrea's pictures all have a great sense of humor to them that uh, this is one of my, my photo, favorite photos as well. And this is, uh, this is Chinatown. A lot of people don't know that there's a Chinatown in Havana, but when uh, China was there, there's a lot of, uh, there were a lot of Chinese people there. Um, and there's only one Chinese Cuban chef left. Um, but it's kind of great to go through Chinatown, which is r really small. It's one little street and probably a dozen or so restaurants at the most. Um, and one Chinese Cuban chef left, uh, and the food was really interesting to have this kind of um, fusion of, of Chinese and uh, Cuban food together. One of the beautiful patinaed walls we find found there in Chinatown, and um, like Andrea said, these the the patina there, the you know um, years and years of paint peeling off, is really something we found really beautiful and textural and. Uh, something you don't see a lot of here. There's our uh, Cuban Chinese chef. We had already eaten a late breakfast and then when we went in there I asked if I could take his picture and go in the kitchen and photograph him and they came back with like four or five huge dishes for us that we were had no choice but to eat after we had uh, eaten breakfast. So this now is in uh, Vinales, which is um, a small uh, town in the country um, where most of the tobacco is grown and um, a lot of really amazing organic farms and uh, great places to eat. If you ever do go to, to Cuba and you have time to get out of uh, Havana, it was, a, it was a great trip to see the countryside and we had some amazing meals at these homes with tons of food and on these uh, great organic farms. and. Um, the farms really have never had an opportunity to change and become non-organic like they are here because uh, they just haven't really kept up with the times, which is kind of nice. Um, and we would just walk into these cigar factories and just start photographing these people. And, and um, it was pretty, pretty amazing to see. And uh, you, you sensed the government kind of watching as you were there too. They had all these, kind of propaganda on the walls and um, you know they count every every cigar that goes through there and every leaf and all that so it was it was a great uh, opportunity for us to to have and go in and, and see how this was done and have a chance to photograph it and meet the people this was uh, another one where this guy was just rolling cigars and they were hanging all these cigars to dry and we were driving by and he kind of waved to us and told us to come in and he started pouring us shots of rum and uh, smoking cigars with us and it was pouring down rain so needless to say we spent half the day hanging out in there with him drinking rum and smoking cigars and taking pictures and uh, having a good time and his his hands you'll see um, I think I have another picture here yeah close-up of his hands his hands were like leather he had been rolling cigars since he was about 12 years old and said that he has to make sure he uses the top of his hand to touch a woman because uh, his hands are too rough otherwise. This is uh, another picture in the cigar factory. Um, all the leaves that are drying and she's there flattening them out and they really had kind of a process but it's all done by hand. So any of you cigar smokers in here, uh, well, once it uh, changes and, and they send them here, they, they are 
I never really smoked cigars until I went to Cuba, and they're pretty amazing. This was also in Vinales early in the morning. Uh, we were just traveling around, taking pictures in the countryside. This is another town called Hershey, Cuba, where in the four, 30s and 40s, Hershey had quite a big sugar plantation operation. Now it's kind of desolate, but this one fantastic woman lives on a train car and she cooks for the men that help fix the trains. And they also live on that train car too in like hammocks that are suspended from the ceiling. But she was a real character. She lived in the back of the train car and had to show us her room that had about a hundred stuffed animals <laughs> hanging from the ceiling. If I knew, I would have brought her one, but that was a fun day. This was in one of the homes that we were, uh, that we were cooking in, and um, this older woman was really proud of her room and wanted to show it to us, so we came in, and we just thought it was really the light coming through the window and just really simple and beautiful and... Um, the, the, the colors of the wall and the patina and everything in Cuba, I, w I was really drawn to and fascinated with. This was one of the kitchens that we photographed in, and again, just really simple, really simple beauty. This is the same kitchen. Um, it was challenging to try and cook in, in these kitchens, especially when Andrea and I are used to kind of when we work on a cookbook or a, um, a photo shoot, we have kind of we're used to our modern kitchens with our gas stoves and and everything to cook and so it was challenging to kind of some of some of the kitchens just had a hot plate or something small to try and cook with and finding ingredients was quite a challenge as well so um, this was actually one of the one of the bigger more grand uh, beautiful kitchens that we had a chance to kind of photograph in and work in while we were there they had refrigerators which I I don't know if I have any in here, but I did photograph some of the insides of the refrigerators because I just found it really interesting to see what people have. It, it's almost like, you know, looking into their, into their home or their purse or, you know, it just tells a whole story about, about who they are, you know, inside of their refrigerator. But um, they did, most, of, most places did have refrigeration. This was the same kitchen um, and this woman's husband uh, had passed away a few weeks earlier, but he was making this rice green bean wine. Um, they're very inventive and very resourceful. Everybody there is, is kind of like a MacGyver and they can, they can cook for themselves and they can fix their own car and they make their own wine and their own rum and they really kind of help each other out and help their neighbors out. and. Um, take care of one another. If there's a doctor in the neighborhood, he helps uh, while other people, you know, help fix their cars. And um, But this guy was making some wine for the neighborhood. And of course, we, we tried some, or I tried some. Andrea might have passed on this one as well. <laughs> it wasn't so great, but I can, uh, it, it does a trick. <laughs> and this, uh, this was another kitchen. This woman had two kitchens in her home. Um, it was quite a huge, beautiful house that she had, and uh, this was the upstairs kitchen that we just thought was, we shot a lot of pictures in and cooked uh, some food in because she had a nice stove and a great kitchen and um, really just beautiful colors and, and patina. This is one of the 
items we made in her kitchen, which to me is like a Cuban matzo ball soup, except you use plantains to make the dumplings. One of our guides, before he was a guide, he used to work in the black market in Cuba, and this is a grandmother of one of his friends who makes flan in her house to sell to restaurants. Someday she makes 80 flans a day to make extra money. So she let us come in and, of course, fed us her delicious flan. When he was taking us uh, to meet her and photograph the flan, it's all in the black market, and we're kind of going through this... Um, old apartment building and I, I felt like we were going to buy it was all dark and black in there and I'm like are you taking us to buy drugs what's, what's happening here like this does not feel very comfortable and he said no there's a flan lady upstairs <laughs> and we got up there and, and here's this woman making flan and her son was an artist and had great art on the wall and um, she'd been doing it her, for a good portion of her life and it was, it was pretty amazing um, it means that it's illegal, but the government does... Yeah, yeah her question was, uh, because it's on the, flat, the black market, does that mean the government doesn't know about it, or do they kind of look the other way? Um, they may not necessarily know about her, but the government knows about the black market, because I think the government has to buy things from the black market. <laughs> So I don't think there's any other way. I mean, we would go to a grocery store to just buy something as simple as salt for, for a recipe, and the lights would be out at the grocery store. So we'd go to another grocery store, and it would be closed. And you'd spend half the day looking for salt, and it just, you'd just go buy it on the black market. It's easier, you know? Um, so it is illegal. I don't think she probably pays any taxes by doing it. I would imagine um, the government probably buys flan from her. Somebody does. <laughs> but, what, but our guide even did like um, satellites. Like he would, they would have satellites for, for um, you know, their, their cable TV and then they'd have one guy in the neighborhood that would tell everybody, here come the police and they would take all of them down before they got there. So they kind of they kind of have to it's a big part of their economy and i think it's it's their only way of really surviving is selling stuff on the black market so um i don't know if that answered your question it's illegal but i'm sure the government has to know about it this was another black market bakery that was hidden in someone's basement um they made a lot of extra money that way these were some young men who would cook bakery goods and then sell them to restaurants or people. This was another uh, black market bakery that was in uh, somebody's backyard. And, and I mean, they are fairly hidden. If you don't, like, you don't know about them, you'd never really find out about them unless you know someone who knows someone who, who buys their hand pies from, from these people down the street. And... Um, they were making hundreds of these a day in their backyard. They had uh, guava trees, and they would they would use the fruit. And there were three or four guys back there making these. And then um, somebody would come up on their bicycle, and they'd put them in baskets on the bicycle, and they'd ride them to the little markets and sell them at the market. And one of the best things we ate when we were there. They were always hard to find, but you start asking around the neighborhood, and you could find out where they were. This is one of my pictures. I thought it was funny that even in 
Havana. They must like Mr. Big from Sex and the City. This was a real character that lived in the same apartment with the little uh, boy and his grandma, and she was making rice pudding. What you don't see is the sexy dance she did while she was making the rice pudding. The Cuban people are extremely sexual group of people, and she she uh, she was just putting on a fun dance for for us as we were sitting there taking pictures of her. This is uh, this is called the Malecon, which is a seawall um, that it goes along uh, Havana. And in the morning or in the afternoon, you'll see a lot of guys out there fishing. And then uh, later in the evening, especially on Friday or Saturday, there will be um, hundreds of or thousands of people kind of dancing and listening to music and just having a good time. Um, they don't they don't have a lot of money, so they don't need to spend a lot of money to have fun, and they can just hang out and and dance and sing and and have some drinks and and have fun with their culture um, without really spending any money. This was uh, a photo I took on the streets and just thought it was kind of perfect and timeless and felt like something we might see uh, 50 years ago. Plus in the rollers, the lady used corn husks to wrap her hair. Again, very resourceful. This is one of the pictures I took. There's, of course, tons of old cars there and they fix it with anything you could imagine. One of my favorite nights was standing outside at about 11 at night and this 80-year-old gentleman introduced himself as Joe and where we were staying, all these old cars would come around in this turnaround and he was a mechanic for 50 years. So a block away, he would, we were standing there, he would say 47, 47 Plymouth, 54 Chevy. He knew just by the headlights what kind of car was coming at us. It was a fun night. The first time we went, our guide, um, his car, we got in the car and we had to push his car to get it to start and he would pop the clutch. And, and, then, and then when he got out and we went back to the car, I realized that he didn't have a key for the car. So he'd actually kind of push the window down and then reach inside and roll down the window. Then he would take two wires and put it together and some vice clips that he had made a little key out of and he would hotwire the car, pop the clutch, we would push it. And at first it was like, do we have to do this every time we get in your car? <laughs> but by the end of the trip, it kind of became fun and, and became the norm and something we were used to. And um, the next time I came back, we, we bought him a clutch and brought it back because a, a lot of these parts are really hard for them to get. And a lot of the, it was, a, it was like part Peugeot and part, it, it was like four cars put together to make one. Um, so we'd bring them back tools and bring them back car parts and things that they couldn't really get unless they kind of handmade it themselves. This was at Santa Maria Beach, uh, and Andrea and I always made a point of taking at least one day uh, and going to the beach and hanging out on the beach. And the beach was really just beautiful and full of locals and not touristy at all. I don't know if there were really any tourists there. Um, really pristine, gorgeous water, great beach. Um, and they would cook food there and uh, the red snapper, so simple and it tasted so good and, and very cheap and uh, 
unfortunately, someday I'm sure it's going to be full of hotels and, and strip malls and everything else that, you know, we have here and will probably end up looking like South Beach. But um, if you get a chance to go, I really suggest going to the beach because we had a great time. There are people playing music and there's a guy that'll take a, he chops a coconut in half with the machete and you suck a little bit of the, the coconut water out and he fills it up with rum and you drink a coconut and rum um, for a couple dollars. Yeah. So we, we always had a great time. And uh, when I took this photograph, the next time we went back, I was kind of looking for the same place and the government had torn it down and it was just like a little folding table with an umbrella the next time we came back. Here's one of the guys uh, playing some music for us on the beach. Of course, uh, after a few of those coconut and rums, I got up there and tried to do a little dance and sing. <laughs> we won't share those photos. This was at uh, one of the bars that we were at, um, and uh, we were having a guarapo, which is, uh, it is sugar cane, water, rum, and lemon? Lime, lime juice. Um, and a, a delicious cocktail. Andrea is not a big drinker, but uh, she had no problem with having two or three of those that day. Uh, and we and they come by and play music. And and one of the greatest things about Cuba is their culture. It's 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 the people, their culture, the music, the art, the dancing. Like it's just um, wherever you go, there's music, and it's so fantastic. You just kind of sometimes walk down a street and you hear music, and just kind of go wherever the music is. So. We really, really enjoyed that. And the good thing about that drink is they use like a sugar cane press and use fresh sugar cane and then the juice came out. We tried to recreate it in Chicago, but we couldn't find that sugar cane press anywhere. Uh, Javon, that's where I found it, yes. This was in uh, one of the homes that we wanted to take we wanted to photograph in, and when we talked to the woman, she said, you know, my grandmother owns this place, and she won't let anybody take pictures in here. And we said, you know, what if we pay your grandmother? And she said, no, you know, um, if you can be out of here before noon, before my grandma wakes up, then you guys can, you can take pictures here. And we said, okay, we'll, we'll make that happen. So um, we came back, and we set up this, Andrea set up this beautiful still life on the, on the table here, their counter, um, and we were taking some photos and saw the rooster running through the house and thought, I think it'd be great to put the rooster on the counter with this, with this ham in the back and make a great picture. And our guide said, oh, that's not a good idea. Have you ever heard a rooster before? They're so loud. That's going to wake up grandma. It's going to be a mess. And, and I said, just put the rooster on the counter. <laughs> so he grabbed the rooster, put the rooster on the counter, and uh, we took a few pictures of it. And then grandma came out with a machete and started chasing me around the around the little island with the machete and I had a long cable release on the camera so I kept click 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 as fast as I could and the rooster I didn't even realize the rooster took off probably because the rooster saw the machete too and uh when I came back I said to my guy just show her the pictures you know show her the back of the camera maybe she'll be okay with it so he pulled up the picture on the back of the camera, and this was, happened to be on there. So it was one of those kind of uh, lucky shots that, uh, that we got. And uh, after we showed her that photo, she kind of um, started to art direct the shoot and tell us how to, uh, how to take pictures and, and that we should use her favorite china uh, to photograph on. And um, we did a photo of a pumpkin flan after that, and she found the best plate and, oh, use this 
portion of my house and uh, she was super sweet after that but uh, here's grandma with the machete <laughs> We, we the next time we went down we brought we brought her that picture as well and this is uh this is some cuban coffee that uh i would get up early in the morning and just kind of walk around the neighborhoods and take pictures and they would sell this coffee either on the street or through somebody's doorway or through a window and i would just see a couple locals standing in line so i'd go stand in line and um they have two different currencies there. One is a Cuban kook and one is the kook, and it's uh, one is a tourist um, currency, so it's a little bit different than the locals. And uh, the smallest bill I'd have is like a dollar to give her for, for a cup of coffee, and it was really kind of like two cents in a Cuban kook. So they often just said, oh, don't worry about it, or I'd end up just buying the line of people some coffee or some kids some candy or something like that. But um, the coffee is super strong, but you have, you know, a tiny little shot of this coffee and go shoot some photos and stop at another one and have a little more coffee. And it was always a fun way to start the day. That's their Starbucks right there. We're, we're praying Starbucks doesn't make it down there. But this was, uh, we were invited to go out to uh, um, somebody's home in the country and they had a pig roast for us. And... They slaughtered the pig there and everything. And uh, they'd actually asked me, hey, would you be interested in slaughtering the pig? And I thought, yeah, that's not a problem. I don't think that would be a problem. And when I saw this big hog and the knife and the noise, and I thought, you know, I think I'll just take pictures and I'll let you guys do this. <clears throat> and when we went to the, the pen where the pig was, it said uh, Daniel above the pen. And I thought, did you guys do this on purpose? Did you, you know, I didn't know if my guide was just messing with me and said, hey, put his name on there or, uh, or if that was really the pig's name. But um, it is pretty amazing to see how much they respect the animal and how much they respect food because they don't let anything go to waste. Um, they save every portion of it and eat all of it. And it's really, um, it was quite an amazing experience to see uh, from beginning to end and we kind of threw a big party and invited everybody over who had helped us on the project and had a big pig roast and drank a bunch of beer and, and had fun. This was one of the paladars and we loved the wall but of course the next time it was gone. Um, one of our favorite things to do when we went to Cuba we would bring baseballs because everyone loves baseball. Men would gather in the park every day and argue over baseball, so we always loved to give the kids a baseball. Sometimes they would cry. They were so happy. So when we were driving in the countryside, this little boy was on the side of the road with his dad who was cooking chicharrones in a huge pot, so we gave him a baseball. <laughs> This is our last photo here, but I do have another funny story about baseballs. Um, like Andrea said, we'd always bring baseballs and give it to the kids. And for some reason, I always had troubles going through customs. Andrea never had any problem, but <laughs> she walks through customs in front of me. And then they pull me aside and said, you over here. And I'm like, wait, I need to tell her that I'm... And so they send me in the back room and... Uh, 
I see uh, several families who, some people brought in car parts from South America and other people had, you know, 20 boxes of clothing that they were probably going to sell on the black market. So it's really to stop black market sales and people who are bringing things in that not necessarily are illegal, but they know that they're not, that they're going to turn around and sell them and it's not supplies for their family. So I don't know how they knew, but they knew that I had a suitcase full of baseballs. Um, <laughs> And so they pulled me aside, and I said to one of the women that had been waiting, I said, you know, how long do you think this is going to take? And she said, well, I've been waiting here for 10 hours. And, and this family that's over there has been there for 12 hours, and, and we have no water. And I thought, oh, my God, it's 11 o'clock at night. Like, I'm just ready to go to bed. <laughs> I don't, I don't, uh, I need to find a supervisor or something. So I asked uh, the woman who um, had, had, brought me in there I said I need to talk to your supervisor and and um, so she said what do you have in your bag and and I don't speak great Spanish so I'm trying to talk to her and uh, I said I have my clothes and and some camera equipment and a few baseballs and they said what are all the baseballs for and I said just to give to kids and she said you have drugs in the baseballs and I said no 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 drugs and she just kept saying drugos drugos I'm like no no uh, baseballs. Um, so she went and got a, a mat knife and started to cut open the baseball and the mat knife looked like it was a hundred years old and gonna cut her finger off with it. I almost pulled a pocket knife out of my suitcase and cut it open for her but didn't want to get in trouble in, in customs. Um, so she cut the, after about 20 minutes, she got the ball cut open. And of course, by that time, it's just powder that's pouring out of this ball. And she says, you know, drugs. And I said, it's, it's not drugs. And so she'd throw the baseball on the ground and it didn't bounce. And she threw it against the wall and it didn't bounce. And I said, it's a baseball. It's not a tennis ball. And she asked what was in the baseball. I said, I, I think it's cork and, and rubber, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, and so... She went and got her supervisor, and both, uh, well, she went and got another coworker. Both of these women were dressed in tiny little mini skirts with fishnet stockings on and a gold bra and lots of cleavage. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of like, what's going on here? Are we really in customs, or is this like a joke? Um, but now it's probably been a half hour, and Andrea has no idea what's going on with me back here. Um, so they then grabbed their supervisor, took me into a small room. Uh, this guy comes in, and he comes in with a cocker spaniel. And I let out this laugh, because I just thought, this can't be your drug dog. Like, <laughs> it's a little cocker, ratty old cocker spaniel. <laughs> and this guy's dressed in, like, tennis shoes and a T-shirt and doesn't look like customs agent at all. Um, so now I think I'm getting set up and they're gonna like throw me in jail for drugs and I'm trying to figure out like a plan of how to get out of this. And uh, fortunately he looked at the baseball, cut you know the stuff inside and he smelled it and he said, you're fine and handed all the, she tried to keep all the baseballs. I probably had about three dozen baseballs and she tried to keep them all and I said, I, I want those back. So they gave them back and I went through customs, but uh, it, it never fails every time I'd go through uh, Cuban customs that they would uh, pull me aside and try and figure out some way of keeping something in my suitcase. And uh, But besides that, uh, traveling to Cuba was, was overall very easy. And um, we the first two times we went on a visa, it was a people-to-people -people visa, 
um, for cultural exchange. And then the last time we went uh, through Canada and we didn't really have any any problems besides the you know my my customs issues um but we had a wonderful time and and the people are so welcoming and so amazing and and friendlier than any other culture or place that we've been i mean they'd invite us as you see those were complete strangers that would invite us into their homes and cook for us and share their recipes with us and invite us to spend the night and um I've never really been anywhere else where the people are, are so friendly and, and loving to the American people. And um, I mean, they consider us to be kind of like a part of their country and they, they hate everything that's happened uh, as much as we do, or if not, if not a lot more than we do, because they're the ones who really have had to suffer from, from all of it. But uh, we had a great time and this book is really kind of a, con uh, a tribute to the Cuban people and their culture and, um, and their food. Where did we stay while we were in Cuba? The first time I stayed at a hotel in Old Havana, and then after that, we stayed in people's homes. Like, um, I would look on TripAdvisor, even though they don't have a website, people would put um, great homes that they stayed in, so then I would email them, and we stayed in two fantastic places. Uh, one couple, uh, we stayed in their house. It was $25 a night, including breakfast, and they were so nice. Our plane was late, and they stayed up till 2 in the morning and made us sandwiches and cocktails. Um, I asked him, oh, is there anything from the United States I could bring you? And he said he's been looking for years for long cocktail spoons to make his cocktails. So... I brought him that, and I brought him two cocktail books, even though he, they were in English, so I, he could look at the pictures. And then Dan, he has a good story where he stayed once. Well, the, the first time I went, um, my guide had set up a place for me to stay. I didn't, the, the, the hotels, um, and I'm not sure if this has changed, but the hotels charge a lot of money for Americans to stay there, at least they did when it was illegal to stay there, um, like $300 a night. And I thought, if I'm going to Cuba, I wanna stay like with the Cuban people and, and it was more affordable. And um, so my guide had set up arrangements to stay in this woman's apartment and we got there late at night. We go knock on the door of her apartment and she said, oh, there's no room anymore. So I thought, well, where am I gonna stay? <laughs> And, and uh, as we went downstairs, there was a guy that was kind of a security guy at the front door, and we explained to him what was happening. And he said, oh, go knock on uh, you know, room 126, and if she's home, she'll let you stay there. So I went and knocked on the door. I was super skeptical about it, of course. I'd never been to Cuba, and I was nervous. And uh, I knocked on the door, and the woman was, yeah, no problem, $15 a night. Come stay here. She made me breakfast and coffee in the morning, and... Uh, the shower was a little skeptical with all the electrical wires running through it, but uh, but um, I was able to lock my door and uh, it, it it was fine. I was like I said, I was a bit nervous at first, but uh, it worked out great and and we we found it to be almost better staying with the locals because you just immerse yourself in their culture and and they talk to you and teach you about their food and and cook for you and it's just it, it, and then they get the money instead of giving it to some big government hotel as well so we we really enjoyed that 
Um, the question was that we've mentioned our guide, um, and do you have to have one? Do we arrange that before we go? You don't have to have one. We got a guide because we wanted access to the black market and access to uh, people's kitchens and somebody who spoke fluent Spanish and who could drive for us and take us to the countryside. Kind of, I mean, we were there working and we wanted things um, a bit quicker than we would if we were on vacation. So we found it to be extremely helpful. Um, our guide's name was Ruben, the last guide we used, and I'd be happy to email any of you his email contact information. I've sent a lot of people to him and they they often do it for one day. If they're there on vacation, they work with Ruben for a day and he can basically take you around Havana and show you anything you need and kind of point you in a, in a direction. Um, I don't think it's necessary at all, but we found it to be extremely helpful uh, when working on this book. And uh, like I said, he got us access to whatever it was that we needed uh, that could have taken us all week to find you know, the cigar guy or something that we were looking for. So um, not necessary, but super helpful. And he, I think, charged around 100 to $125 a day, um, which is a lot of money uh, for, for Cubans. But he was able to make some good money, and we gave him a nice tip, and uh, it was well worth it for us. So I, I highly recommend it for at least a day. She asked how we got interested in going to Cuba. And, yes, it was... Um I wanted to go to Cuba, and uh, one of my cousins said, oh, let's take a trip to Cuba. When she gave me the itinerary, it was all like listening to this person talk about agriculture or having to go on a religious mission where I'm more interested in the people, art, food, dance. So um, I saw that there was a photo workshop where you could go to Cuba, and it's called the people-to-people -people cultural exchange. So my whole trip was about photographing the people, and we went to uh, listen to music, went to the Cuban ballet dance studios. We went to all different paladars, and so I didn't have to listen to all the boring stuff. And so that's when I told Dan about my trip, but it was sold out, so then he went the following week, and that's how uh, we fell in love with Cuba and went back two more times. And we had both done a lot of cookbooks for other people in the past. Um, we had just finished doing Stephanie Izard's cookbook at the time, and we really just wanted to publish our own book. So uh, as, as the Cuba project started to evolve, Andrea and I said, you know, I think we can really turn this into a book and really kind of pursued that. And um, so this is the first book that we've published, but we've done many other books um, for, for other people. Yeah, we just, uh, we worked on the Fat Rice Cookbook as well. Um, Andrea styled and art directed and I photographed it. But, uh, and then the previous year we did Mindy Siegel's um, Cookie Love Cookbook as well. Um, the question was, what towns did we visit, and when was the last time we were in Cuba? Um, last time we were there was two years ago. Uh, two years ago was the last time we were there. Uh, we started the project five years ago, so we went three times over the course of five years. Um, 
And we spent most of our time in Havana. Um, we would take day trips to Santa Maria and uh, smaller towns right outside of Havana. But we took a couple of longer trips to Hershey. Um, that's where the there's really nothing in Hershey besides the train car, <laughs> and some and some people who were who were there uh, when it was a chocolate factory 60, 70 years ago. Um, and Vinales, which is where all the tobacco and all the organic farms were, and Vinales was amazing and definitely worth the trip. And and that having a guide for that was really helpful to have somebody that could drive us there, find places for us to stay, um, set all that up ahead of time for us and make it really seamless and easy. So Vinales, um, Hershey and Havana, but most of our time, Havana is such an amazing town and has so much culture that it's hard, it's kind of hard to leave. You know, it's like being in New York City, but in, you know, it's like, there's so much to do there and so much to see. And for this project, uh, we had all of our resources there. She's asking how far these other towns are from Havana. We drove both times. Hershey is about an hour and a half out of Havana, and then Vinales about two and a half or three hours out. Excuse me? Very safe. Dan laughs at me, but one of my favorite food I got when we were driving to Vinales, we stopped in a gas station to get some lunch, and a young boy was selling ham sandwiches on fresh bread for a dollar. I still remember that sandwich. <laughs> Every, everything, at one farm we went to, they had a uh, lunch that must have had 15 different entrees, and you get a bottle of rum, and I think it was $10. <laughs> it was crazy. But the crops were all tropical fruit from, from mangoes to bananas to pineapples to um, all kinds of different fruits and uh, vegetables. Um, they'd have chickens and, and, and pigs and uh, goats and all kinds of animals that they would uh, have on the, on the farms as well and, and cook for everybody. So a lot of people go there and they'd have big, big lunches for um, tourists who are coming through there. Any grain crops? Um, I think there was some. I never saw any any corn or any wheat or anything. It was it was mainly like tropical fruit that we saw at a lot of a lot of the um, a lot of the local farms. I mean, they have a lot of rice, but I think their rice is all I think it's all imported. Um, and I was actually told that the U.S. supplies them with rice. Now, I don't know if that's accurate or not. It seems odd to me that they would, because they still do rations of rice. The government does rice and I think bread and maybe chicken or something once a month, one kind of meat that they get uh, from the government. But um, they do sell a lot of rice, but I don't think it's grown in Cuba. He was just saying that uh, a lot of the rice comes from Vietnam and, and China, did you say? M mostly, mostly Vietnam, that it's, that it's cheaper than, than trading with the U.S. because of the current state of our embargo. Rice was definitely a staple, though, and every, every, every meal has rice and beans. Every home we went into, there were rice and beans cooking on the stove. I mean, it's like, it's like a pot of coffee here. It's rice and beans there. I mean, every single home had it. It's, it's white rice, but often cooked with black beans. Um, 
Yeah, congri, which is a combination of the beans and rice together. And I'm not sure if it's, if it's the ham, um, but their rice and beans is better than any rice and beans I've had. Like, we try and duplicate it. We've tried it in so many places. And it's just the one thing that is always really good and so simple and just one of the, my favorite things when I go to Cuba. And I know that our government has supplied them with some of it as well, which seems odd to me, but they they did get some of the, um, I don't know if it was the soy you were saying. And there were a lot of like small little farms around Havana, like you might see in Detroit or something, you know, little tiny farms popping up, urban farms that are in the middle of the city that people would have um, growing their own produce or su selling it to a local market, just tiny little you know, plots of land where they, they had small farms, but most of them were outside of, outside of Havana. Um, I like that restaurant Paladar. I don't know if you've ever been there. And of course there's 90 miles, but also even though it's a small sandwich shop, um, I love Cafe Cito. I don't know if you've ever been there. They have great sandwiches and really good rice and beans. Yeah, that was, that was the hard part. We did bring a lot of spices. Oh, I'm sorry. What kind of spices do they use for cooking? That was the question. So a lot of times we brought our own spices or they use things to flavor, like we've had coconut rice and stuff. One of their um, things they flavor th things with is called bijou. I don't know if you've ever, like B-I-J-O-L. I'm not Spanish, my thing. <laughs> it's kind of like a fake saffron. Um, we, we, I brought saffron a couple times, and uh, they hadn't really tasted anything quite like it. Because we, we, you know, that, that's the one thing that I think is really going to change in Cuba is when they have access to some of these spices that we have here. Um, we found it challenging to find good spices there and you know they do use cumin and a lot of lime and and um very simple ingredients i mean e even that red snapper i think it's just probably like a squirt of lime on it um it's it's they don't really do a ton of it a ton of um spices and flavoring a lot of it comes from slow cooking slow cooking uh with with you know chunks of chunks of pork fat and things that really flavor it through other pieces of meat versus other spices. At least that's what we found with the, the local people. They do use a ton of garlic. Um, yeah, sorry. They do use a lot of garlic. Um, they Moho is something that they put on almost everything, and I now use it on almost everything. Uh, and Moho is basically just crushed uh, slowly, well, it you heat up hot olive oil and then you pour it over the garlic so you don't really cook the garlic but it just kind of quickly cooks the garlic so it's not uh, raw garlic um, and you mix that with cumin and we uh, found in in Cuba they use like a um, sour orange juice with that uh, the garlic is yeah it's it's chopped you can either you can use uh, mortar and pestle or a Cuisinart um, and then you pour the hot oil over it, but you have to be really careful. And I think in our recipe, it talks about this, that you don't overheat the oil because once the oil starts smoking, it can burn really fast and then it doesn't taste good at all. So it's like 
right as it's getting ready to smoke, I pull it off the stove and pour it over the top of the garlic. And it that sometimes raw garlic is just way too powerful and it really just kind of mellows it out. And I kind of prefer it after it sits overnight. And then the next day you stir it all up and I've even put it on uh, arugula, tossed it with the arugula and put it on my pizza before and it's fantastic. So yeah, they, they had sell it in the, oh, oh sorry. The, the, the question there was, did they have bittersweet um, oranges around? And they do, but um, they sell it in the bottle there at the markets, like uh, a bitter orange juice, uh, which you can find here in some of the Hispanic markets. Um, and that we haven't had a problem finding it, but if you can't find it, we suggest using orange juice with some lime juice. Um, I, I personally prefer the, the sour orange juice. Uh, she was saying that uh, when she lived in Arizona, there was a a friend who had an orange tree, and they would pick them and 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 squeeze those because nobody really eats them because they're so bitter. And he would marinate the pork in them. A, a lot of the Cubans, that's exactly what they do. They marinate their meat in the sour oranges or even in the mojo itself. Um, we've seen people marinating the meat, but that's a great way to break down a piece of meat that they can then slow cook. And uh, um, so. The, the sour oranges are used a lot there. No, the air quality, air quality uh, was her question. And the air quality in Havana is like, they get this diesel fuel from Venezuela and it is not pleasant at all. And so these cars, I mean, there's no emissions being tested there or anything. So it is extremely smoggy um, in the sense that when you're right down in, the, in it and you're breathing in, you know, bus fumes and car fumes. By the end of the day, I always had had some kind of issues because of it. Um, once you get out of Havana, yes, it's it's the air quality is great. I mean, it's out by the beaches and in the countryside. It's it's beautiful. It's a tropical country, and you would expect it to be like that. But in in Havana itself, it's almost like being in a small Asian city in you know China, where you feel like just a lot of smog and, and uh, from mainly I think from the, from, the, from the cars and buses and diesel fuel. The question was what did they serve with the pig at the pig roast? Um, they served a huge plate of uh, a bunch of uh, the rice and beans, congri, which is like the mixture of rice and beans. They had some grilled vegetables there as well, like uh, different squash and, uh, and, and peppers and onions. Um, and I think we we had a tres leches cake uh, for dessert afterwards, and that's one of the things, one of the recipes in our book that Andrea and I really love. It's super easy to make. Is that the tres leches? Yeah. It's it's really easy to make, and one of the one of the best, one of our favorite things, and it looks really good too. The the question was, uh, do they use a lot of hot peppers? Um, and no, we really didn't find a lot of hot peppers or a lot of, it's very different from Mexico and you would think like maybe there's a hint of heat and on occasion, on occasion we would add something in here that spices it up a little bit because it's nice to have a little bit of heat in your food and, and but most of the food was, I don't wanna say bland, but it was like as far as the level of heat, there's very little spice. If there was spice, it comes from like garlic or an onion, but but never from, a pepper. Um, she asked about walking around in safety. Actually, um, Cuba has one of the lowest 
um, crime. I think it's less than 1% and most of it comes from pickpockets. So you felt completely safe more than any other probably country I have ever went to. The question was, do, did we have any language issues um, because neither of us speak great Spanish? We could get by. Um, there are definitely people there that speak English. Some speak great English. Um, it was also challenging at times, and I was trying to teach myself Spanish because I thought, by the time I'm done with this, I have to be able to speak Spanish. I never really found the time, and I'm kind of mad that I didn't stick with it as a kid because it's, it would be so much easier if I could speak fluent Spanish. Um, so it was challenging, but definitely not a reason not to go. I mean, um, I'll travel to countries where I never understand the language, but you can still manage to get by. And, you know, I often just, I do what the locals do. If they're all standing over here getting coffee, that's where I'm going. Um, if they're all standing in line, you know, and in, in waiting for noodles at a restaurant, I go and stand in line because that's what they're doing. And I assume it's good. So um, I've always just kind of followed the music and the locals and, and, if you don't really have to speak the language. Um, but I think they're learning more and more English there and it's gonna become a lot easier as well. Um, the question was, can we tell you about some of the recipes in the cookbook? Um, one of the recipes that's my favorite is uh, uh, crispy lamb, or I think it might be called the twice cooked lamb. Uh, and it's basically like a ropa vieja, slow cooked, uh, which is often very traditional in uh, Cuban cuisine, is to slow cook the meat, maybe marinate it in some uh, um, lime juice or, or sour orange juice, and it kind of breaks down the meat. You slow cook the lamb, and then you shred it uh, like the ropa vieja, and then you fry it. And then after you fry that, the pan has kind of got all these crispy, oily bits in it, and you toss an onion in there with that and cook that up and pour it back on top of the lamb. And it was, we had it there the last time we went, and I hadn't had it before, and it was like, both of us looked at each other, we were like, wow, this is, all we were eating was a plate of meat, but it was delicious. So we recommend it with a salad and maybe rice and beans and, and some plantain chips. Um, the plantains are great. Uh, one of our favorites. And, and again, I, I, I just like the simplicity of the food. So the red snapper is really simple. Um, it's just a grilled fish, you know, and, and it's very basic. Uh, the rice and beans is delicious. The plantains um, are one of our favorites. Uh, thinly sliced plantains, they look great on a plate and really good. Um, the tres leches cake is, is, is stunning. So, uh, it looks really pretty when you make it. If you have a dinner party, a lot of people have said they make the tres leches cake and everybody really enjoys it and it looks great. So um, those are some of my favorite recipes in the book. Any that you... I do love the the soup that we showed you with the plantain dumplings, delicious. The ropa vieja sliders are one of my favorites. There's a recipe in the book for a uh, mojito cake that's fantastic. We didn't put anything in there that we didn't like. We tested hundreds of recipes. <laughs> that's in the book as well. Yes, the question was, do they have yucca? And uh, they do cook with yucca quite a bit. Fish is, fish is pretty available. There's a lot of seafood there. There's, there's great lobster there. Uh, 
I ordered lobster quite a bit because lobster's so expensive here and it was so cheap there. I thought, is this lobster really like $5? Um, I'll take two. And so <laughs> I, I ate lobster a lot. Um, they are, the question was, are they little lobsters? They are small lobsters. Um, and the fish is, fish is available almost everywhere. A lot of restaurants serve, serve seafood and squid and octopus and um, they've incorporated kind of paella, um, a Cuban paella, similar to the Spanish paella, but a cheaper version of their saffron. Um, they have a lot of shrimp and like langoustines and, and um, kind of like you'd expect in the Caribbean. So, um, but it is all gov the government runs the fishing. So on occasion, I'd find somebody who was who was fishing for conch or fishing for um, lobsters, and they would literally just dive down and catch them and pull them up, and um, you could buy them from some people, but it was it's very illegal to, to fish. I think the government does crack down on that. They won't let you go out in a boat, um, although that is, that is changing, because I do know uh, some fishing guides who are going down there fly fishing now. It's going to be an amazing place to fish. So um, the water is really untouched. I mean, it's it's crystal clear and, and so pretty and pristine. And um, it'll be beautiful to go diving there and, and fishing there someday soon. Also, one time when we went down in the marina, we did see a guy with a um, pull up in a car and then he had a, opened his trunk and it was full of fish. Yeah, they had a uh, kind of like an empty parking lot that had shipping containers in it, and people were pulling fish out, putting them in the, their uh, refrigerator chest there, and then someone pulls up in the car, and they'd fill up the trunk of the car with fish, and he'd run them over to the restaurant. So we were taking pictures of it, but they were not happy about it at all, and they were pretty much like, get out of here, but I couldn't resist to snap a few photos.